Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, thank you, Dennis. My name is David G. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic with a sobriety date in AA of August 8th, 1994. I'm also a grateful recovering member of Sexaholics Anonymous. I have a sobriety date in that program as well of October 1st of last year. I'm grateful to be able to share the big book with you guys. We've been doing this over the past few weeks. We've looked at the problem. We've looked at the solution. And now we're looking at more about alcoholism. We're going to be looking today at sane thinking versus insane thinking. And this is what happens to us just before we relapse each time. It seems like I will be going along. Things will be going good in my life. Things are good with the family. Things are good with the work. Sane thinking, sane thinking. And one day. The insane idea comes into my mind that I can once again control and enjoy one more time that which is uh, proved to me that I cannot. However, I will try it again over and over and over. And so we've been looking at that's, you know, nothing new under the sun. So anyway, we're going to be taking a look at chapter three on page 30 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous today. Now, we know that Ebby brought Bill the solution. And we know that the solution, as we looked at it last week, was the spiritual experience in order to recover from alcoholism, sexaholism, whatever, whatever our ism is. That is what's required to recover. Now, but Bill did not like this idea when Abby brought it to him. He also knew that we wasn't going to like this idea any more than he did. But he said, let me write another chapter and let me tell him a little more about alcoholism. Let me talk to him about what the mind does prior to the relapse. And I'll guarantee you, if they're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, they will go for this solution at once. So if you'll hold the page and just flip back with me for just a moment to page 12, I want to take a look at how this affected Bill in the same way that many of us feel whenever we're told that this is what we're going to need in order to recover. So looking at page 12, we're going to start right there where he says, despite the living example of my friend. Now he's talking about Ebby Thatcher. There remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. So we know anytime we see the word prejudice in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's talking about a prejudged idea. It's not talking about the color of skin or anything like that. It's talking about a prejudged idea. Bill says the word God still aroused a certain anthropy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. That's the same way I felt when I came into your fellowship. And you told me that I could have a relationship with a God personal to me. I felt the same way as Bill did. The feeling was intensified. Bill said, I did not like the idea. I did not like the idea either. I could go for such conceptions as creative, intelligent, universal mind or spirit of nature. But I resisted the thought of the czar of the heavens, however loving his way may be. I have since talked with scores of men who have felt the same way. My friend, talking about Ebby Thatcher, suggested what then seemed a novel idea he said 
Why don't you choose your own conception of God? And that's the statement that has changed our fellowship for years and years and years. I don't have to come in here with the old idea of the Pentecostal God that I grew up with all those years ago. There's nothing wrong with that idea of God. It just did not work for me. I can't change who God is, but I can change who my conception of God is. And if I'm going to recover in this program, I better do that. So if I wasn't convinced in chapter two, by the time they took me through chapter three, I'll guarantee you I was convinced. So let's take a look at chapter three, more about alcoholism. And we will just kind of uh, look at where he's going to give us four different examples. He's going to talk to us about the man of 30. He's going to talk to us about a man named Jim. He's going to talk to us about a jaywalker. And he's going to talk to us about a man named Fred. In each of these instances, these men had sane thinking, but then the insane thinking came in, took over, and they relapsed and was gone once more. So let's see if we can find ourselves in these examples, and let's see if we can do what they did in order to recover. So let's start right there, page 30, top paragraph. Bill says this, most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. And I don't know about you, but I know about me, and when I came here, I didn't have a problem admitting that I had some problem with drinking. I had some problem with lust, but I was a long way from admitting that I was a real alcoholic, sexaholic, lustaholic. Bill says no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different. Remember bodily. We looked at the physical allergy over the weeks. That makes us different. Mentally, he says, we've looked at the obsession up to this point. We're going to look at it more and more. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows because of those two reasons. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers, our acting out careers, lusting careers, whatever it is, have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. Well, my mind automatically says that's not true. My experience says that's very true. I have tried that over and over and over in all areas of my life. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking or his acting out is the great obsession, there's that word, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. I've seen this with several men that I've sponsored over the years in AA. I have seen death come as a result of that. I've seen insanity. It's just a horrible, horrible disease. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics or sexaholics. This is the first step in recovery. So for me to admit that I am powerless is the first step in recovery. He says the delusion, and if you watch Bill, he will use the same word or the same meaning to the word, but different words every time. And if you watch him closely here, you can kind of get what, he, what he's driving at. But if not, then you don't quite understand. But what he says here, he says the delusion, and we know what a delusion is. It's believing something that is not true. That's what our mind does to us prior to relapse. It convinces us that the truth is the truth, even though it's a lie. So he says the delusion that we are like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And we're going to look at that word control a lot. We've looked at it some last week. We looked at it again. If you remember back on page 24, and let's flip there just for a quick second, where the squiggly writing takes place. And they always say anytime that you see squiggly writing in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we better pay close attention to that. 
Remember, he said this on page 24. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Now, I don't read anywhere in this literature where we ever get that choice back. Our choice must be a higher power. We will see that coming up. So he says the delusion that we are like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control. And I don't know about you, but I felt that several times. I felt like I was into recovery now. I was doing a little better. I wasn't acting out. I wasn't drinking. I was regaining a little control. But this was my experience. Look at this very next sentence. But such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We're convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type, and we're going to look at the types of alcoholics he's talking about in this book. We're in the grips of a progressive illness. That's a promise. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. In other words, if, I, if this is not treated with a solution that is outlined in this book, it has been my experience and the experience of many others, we will get worse, never better. That's a promise as well. Not all promises in the big book are good ones. So we're like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. In other words, a man like that has to be carried everywhere that he goes. I don't want to be carried. I want to be able to walk. This, prom this program promises I can walk again. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I've been to therapy. I've been to church. I've been to confession. I've done all of these things, and I still ended up relapsing and acting out again. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it has not done so yet. That's been the case from, from the 1930s all the way to the present day. I don't know of any pill that will cure this. And in the beginning, when I came here, I might have entertained such an idea. But even if that did get me sober, God is not contained within that pill. So I'm not going to take that at all. I'm going to go this route here. Let's drop to the bottom paragraph on page 31. Now, this was the only instruction in the big book that I would follow for a long time, for many years of trying to come in to AA and even into SA. Look what he says. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic. But you can quickly diagnose yourself, step over to the nearest bar room or step over to the nearest chat room or step over to the nearest Internet. And let's try some controlled drinking or some controlled lusting. And let's see how that works out for us. It says try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take you long to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. And I've seen this happen over and over. Though there's no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics or sexaholics have enough desire to stop while there is still time. And that was definitely my experience. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here's one. So we talked in the beginning about Four examples, a man of 30, a man named Jim, the jaywalker, and a man named Fred. So our first example is going to be a man of 30. Now, when I read this story, if I just read it with a naked eye, it just sounds like, well, you know, this guy had a lot of bad luck. And, and man, I really hate that for him. But how does that apply to me? 
Well, what I need to do is put myself in this story, take the man of 30 out, and let's see if I can identify with some of the things that happened to him. And let's see if I can see what's going to happen to me if I do what he did. So we're going to take a look at that starting right now. A man of 30. Now, I've heard this was a man named J.C. Penney. I've heard all these different things about who this man was. I don't have any evidence to back that up, so I don't exactly know who he was. I just know that he is in the big book for a reason, and here's that reason. The man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. Think about that with our sexaholism. Those of us who are on this call that have that problem, doing a great deal of spree lusting. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor or more lust. I don't know about you, but I've had that experience lots and lots of times. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank or for some of us, if he acted out at all. But here's the key three words. Once he started, see, there's that physical allergy. Once we start, we're unable to stop. And that's the reason why. And we've looked at that in the weeks past. If you've not listened to the prior recordings, please do about the physical allergy. Once he started, he had no control, whatever. That was because of the allergy. Now, he made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. Now, I've made that same uh, decision many times, but I've never been able to live up to that. Now, this man was an exceptional man, it says. He remained bone dry for 25 years. Now, it doesn't say he had good recovery and good sobriety. It says that he remained bone dry. I don't know about you, but I've been dry, not for 25 years, but for a year or so, and that is a miserable existence for me. He says he retired at the age of 55, and after a successful and happy business career, look carefully at what happens to this man. This is one of the few times the big book is going to talk about you and I being a victim. Usually it talks about everything but us being that, but right here is one example of you and I being a victim. He then fell victim to a belief, which practically every alcoholic or sexaholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline qualified him to drink or with some of us to lust as other men. I don't know about you, but I've had that experience. Out came the carpet slippers in a bottle. Okay, now he's triggered the allergy. Let's look what happens. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. There again, he believed the lie within his mind that, that, that he could drink. And once he took the drink, he triggered the allergy. He's gone. Now let's see what happens. He tried to regulate. In other words, he tried to choose. He tried to act as if he had a choice again for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then gathering all of his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt fell. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. The disease killed him. Now, let's look what it says here. This case contains a powerful lesson. For most of us have believed, in other words, we have believed this lie right here. If we remain sober for a long stretch, and that long stretch could be 25 years to 25 days. But for some reason, what happens in our mind is what he describes here. We could thereafter drink or lust normally. The book says, but here was a man who at 55 found where he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic or once a sexaholic, always an alcoholic or always a sexaholic again and again and again. Now, this is one statement in the book that I don't agree with. 
Now, whenever I look at this, where it says this case contains a powerful lesson, it comes on down to say, but here was a man who at 55 years found just where he had left off at 30. But if you read his story carefully on page 32 there, he had a choice and he was able to stop for 25 years there. Now, once he activated the disease, once again, he didn't have that choice again. So I don't believe that the man of 30 was just where he had left off the same way that he did when he was 30. Uh, I just don't believe that. Over here, he tried every means of solving his problem, which money could, uh, could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt fell, and he died. So if he would have had a choice whether or not he could have remained sober again for another 25 years, I promise you he would have took it. It says, uh, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever, or in most of our cases, if not worse. So right here is what we need to look at. If we are planning to stop drinking, if we are planning to stop acting out, and that's the one thing that I, I ask the guys that I sponsor, are you planning to stop altogether? Look at this. There must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. Because if that is there, there's no point in us moving any further in this book. Because if that's the case, then you probably still have a choice. And the book, and I know from my experience, there is no choice. Bottom paragraph. To be gravely effective, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time. Or one does not necessarily have to act out a long time. I used to go to meetings and I'd hear people say that I've been doing, I've been drinking for 25 years and you've only, you know, and you come in here young and this and that. You know what the book says? That doesn't matter. It says to be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time nor take the quantity some of us have. This is particularly true of women. And I know this to be the truth. I know women that have drank for a very short amount of time and are in worse shape than most of the people that have been drinking for a, a lot of years. And I see it with this disease of sexaholism as well. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms, and that's what we'll be looking at coming up in the weeks ahead. We will be looking at the symptoms that underlie this disease. See large number of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try to get them to see it. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point to where we could stop on our own willpower. Now, if anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, Here's going to be the second drink test. Remember, we looked at the first one. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try it more than once. Well, he's going to tell us again, if you're not convinced, here's something else you can try. And there, there is what he says again. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. Now, in the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be potential alcoholic. Talking about my sexaholism, I met my wife in 1994, and we were good friends until... 2004 we started dating in 2004 we were married in 2005 
lust went away. It just did not return. And I thought, man, that's amazing. That's what the problem has been for me all along. I just needed somebody that I could truly, truly love. Now, my mind was setting me up here for something that was to come later on that was going to be very devastating. But at the time, it went away. And that's what he's saying here. The early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more. I did. I stayed sober that time from lust from 2004 until about 2007 before it returned. So uh, about three years. Uh, But look at what it says, becoming serious drinkers again later. And this is what happened. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic or sexaholic. We think few to whom this book will appear can stay dry anything like a year. Some of us will be drunk or we will act out the day after making our resolutions, most of us within a few weeks, and some of us in this program of Sexaholics Anonymous within a few hours. This is a very deadly disease. For those who are un- unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. And I think the ones that come here are those of us who really have this question, how do we stop altogether? It says we're assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. So if I'm desiring to stop, I'm going to have to make that very well known, not only by what I say, but by what I do. But I think this is really a very, very important sentence here because we talk about the power to choose a lot. We talk about the power of choice a lot. I believe for a long time I had the power to choose whether or not I would act out again after I got sober. That wasn't the case. I didn't realize that. But he says this, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which I have already lost the power to choose whether I would drink or I will act out or whether I will not. So I've lost the power. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. Think about that in your own life with acting out, with drinking, whatever the case may be. I'm sure there have been many times that you had a tremendous urge to cease forever for one reason or another. I know I have, yet I found it impossible. See, that's the baffling feature of alcoholism or sexaholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So we're going to take a look now at our second example, and we're going to look at a man named Jim. I want to go to page 35, and let's look up at the first full paragraph, and let's ask ourselves this question. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic or a sexaholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon or he goes back to the Internet or back to the chat room or wherever he goes. They're mystified. The book says, why does he do this? Of what is he thinking? That was my question to myself for a lot of years. And I had read this book for a lot of years. So let's take a look at this guy named Jim. And let's look how sane thinking led to insane thinking and how Jim relapsed after a period of sobriety. And let's see if we can put ourselves in Jim's spot and see if this isn't what happened to us time after time. 
Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. I marked his name out of my big book and wrote David right there. This man has a charming wife, and I do, and a family, and I do. Now, he inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He has a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. Now, Jim did no drinking until he was 35. And in a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. Now, let's look at what happened to Jim. We told him what we knew of alcoholism, step one. They told him about the physical allergy. They told him about the mental obsession. And they told him about the unmanageability. So they told him what they knew of alcoholism. And the answer we had found, step two. They told him about a power greater than himself. They told him about a spiritual experience that was required in order to recover. It says he made a beginning. Now, if you will remember on page 63 of this book, step three tells us that this is only the beginning. So if you'll look at page 63 for just a second, drop down to the very last paragraph and then come up about three sentences. The book says this. This was only the beginning. So we see here that Jim came to Alcoholics Anonymous and Jim took the first three steps. Now let's look at what happened to Jim as a result of taking the, the first three steps. And let's look at, at, at what happened to Jim as a result of not taking the rest of the steps. Jim's family was reassembled. Man, that's a beautiful promise. You, yeah, I'll take three steps to do that in the condition I was in a year ago when I came here to SA. I promise you. He says he began to work as a salesman for a business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time. But right here's what happened to Jim. We know that the spiritual awakening is going to take place in steps 4 through 12. We looked at that, and there is a solution last week. See, Jim took the first three steps, but he failed to enlarge on his spiritual life. He did not work steps 4 through 12. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. So six times, back to back to back to back, Jim relapsed. On each of these occasions, we worked with him. Those are good members of Alcoholics Anonymous or Sexaholics Anonymous or whatever the program is. Most people, after you relapse a time or two, they'll throw you away. They don't mess with you too much anymore. But the book says on each of these occasions, they worked with him, good members, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition, step one. He knew, man, if I could circle those two words in my book and look at my experience, I, I tell you, I knew every time the same thing that he knew right here. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum, jail, treatment center, whatever you want to call an asylum. He knew he was going there if he kept on. Moreover, he knew he would lose his family for who he had deep affection. Every time I acted out, I knew there was a chance that my family was going to be gone. But I did the same thing he did right here at the top of page 36. I got drunk again. I acted out again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This was his story. And that's kind of how I am. You asked me to tell you exactly what happened. I want to tell you a story. I'm going to come up with a story to tell you. So let's look at what he says. I came to work on Tuesday morning. Now, I don't know about where you live, but where I live, the work week starts on Monday morning, usually not Tuesday. So where was Jim all day Monday? 
<laughs> we know where Jim was. Look what he says. He says, I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Now, remember in the doctor's opinion, he told us we are irritable, restless, and discontent unless we can again experience the sense and ease and comfort, which comes from taking a few drinks. So Jim's irritated. But look at that closely. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. There's nothing abnormal about that kind of thinking. I believe that I would feel the same way as he did. Nothing abnormal, nothing insane about that kind of thinking at all. That is sane thinking. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I've had words with my boss, it was serious. But still, that's not insane thinking. That's a sane reaction. Usually, whenever I have a words with a boss, we usually either clear it up and we go on. Jim says, then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. Nothing insane about that type of thinking. If you're a car salesman, it would make absolute sense that you would drive into the country, that you would look for a prospect. Jim says, on the way, I felt hungry. Nothing abnormal, nothing insane about that kind of thinking. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. There's nothing insane about that. I had no intention of drinking. Still, same thinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich, and I also had the notion I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I'd been going to it for years. Nothing insane about that. I'd eaten there many times during the months which I'd been sober, so that tells me Jim had been sober on the first three steps for some months. Nothing insane about that. I sat down at the table. I ordered a sandwich, same thinking, and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking, same thinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a pretty good-sized boy. Two sandwiches and two glasses of milk is kind of a little over the top. But if I'm really hungry, I can see where I could do that. Same thinking. Watch how this insanity hits him. Suddenly, and I mean that's right now, right now, the thought crossed my mind. That if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, or if I was to go to the internet, or if I was to do send a text, if I was to get on a chat, whatever it is I do, if I were to do that, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Look how the insanity hit his mind. He believed the lie. Look at what he did. He ordered the whiskey and poured it into the milk. Now it's in his body. The physical allergy is there. Okay. He don't have a choice anymore. He's bought into the lie. He's triggered the allergy. Let's see what happens to Jim. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Insanity. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. Insanity. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Insanity. Insanity's got him now, coupled with the allergy. Jim's on a run one more time. Thus started one more journey to the asylum, jail, treatment center, whatever you want to call an asylum for Jim. There was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering, which drinking always caused him. Look at this real closely. He had much knowledge of himself as an alcoholic. Doesn't matter. You and I can have all the knowledge in the world of ourselves as an alcoholic, a sexaholic, or whatever it is. And I promise you, it's not enough to get us sober. Knowledge is not the answer here. Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor for the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? 
So if insanity is the proportion of the ability to think straight, sanity must be the proportion of the ability to think straight. How can it be called anything else? You may think this an extreme case to us. It's not far-fetched for this kind of thinking. And see, there it is again. The thinking is characterized by every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. How many of us on this call today have looked at the consequences and knew what it was going to be, but yet the insane idea went out and we were gone again. But there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning. That's almost scary to look at that sentence and think that that's what goes on inside of my mind. There's a curious mental phenomenon that parallels with my sound reasoning. My insanity is running right next to my sanity, and it's going to win out if I'm not in fit spiritual condition. There inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink, for acting out, whatever it is, our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. Why is that? Why? If I've come to meetings and I've done what I've been asked to do here, why would my sound reasoning fail to hold me in check? For me, my experience is I have not had the experience. I've not connected to the power yet. And when it's like that, it's always going to win out. The insane idea won out. Look at the book. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? Now, I don't know about you, but I've asked myself that question on many, many occasions. All right. Let's look at the bottom of page 37. I think we have time for about one more example here. And then we'll finish it up. Our behavior, not Jim's behavior, but our behavior is absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink or acting out is that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Now, I don't know about you, but let's take away jaywalking and all of that, and let's put in acting out, let's put in lust, let's put in drinking, whatever our problem is. I enjoy myself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. I've had people in AA tell me that. Why don't you just cut that out, David? And I look at him just puzzled. How can you say that? I mean, <laughs> if I were normal, I would cut it out. But obviously, I'm abnormal. The book says presently he's hit again. This time he has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he decided to stop jaywalking for good. That's me. I've made a decision to stop drinking, acting out, doing all these things for good. But in a few weeks, here I am again. I break both legs. Now, on through the years, this conduct continues. Even with me going to meetings and trying to do the right thing, my conduct continues here. Accompanied by my continual promises to be careful or keep off the streets altogether. Finally, I can no longer work. My wife gets a divorce and I'm held up to ridicule. I promise you that's where I was at a year ago before I came to you folks. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. I tried every, every known means to get the idea of lust and acting out out of my head. Book says he shuts himself up in an asylum. Now, I didn't do that, but I shut myself up in meeting. I hid out. I did everything I had to do, doing what he did here, hoping to mend his ways. 
But relapse was around the corner, just as it was for this man. And it says here, but the day comes when he races out in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, if we have uh, substituted sexaholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. Now, however intelligent we have been in other respects where alcohol or lust has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It is strong language, but isn't it true? Well, some of you are thinking, and some of you on this call may be thinking this as well. Yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit that we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking or lusting or acting out, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Now, that may be true of certain non-alcoholic people, and we meet them all the time. We meet people who are not alcoholic. They're not sexaholic. I mean, they can take a drink or two, and they can walk away. They don't have the physical allergy the same as we do. But the book says that may be true for them. It's not so, so much truth for us. Who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and their bodies have not been as damaged as ours were. But the actual potential alcoholic or sexaholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking or lusting and acting out on the basis of self-knowledge. I can know everything there is to know about this disease and die from it. I have to have a spiritual experience. This is the point we wish to emphasize and reemphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. And I think that uh, we could save Fred for next week because the rest of the chapter is pretty powerful as well. I'm so grateful to be able to share the book with you guys and my experience of the book. If I've said anything here today that doesn't line up with what your sponsor has told you to do or the way that you've studied the book with your sponsor, please disregard what I say altogether. Your sponsor is right. I'm not here to share knowledge or any of that. I'm here to share my experience through the big book, and I'm so grateful that you've allowed me the opportunity to do that here today. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.